0: Let me pray again for us. Indeed, indeed, Lord, we need you every hour, every moment of every day. You're the one who upholds the universe by the word of your power. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, we need you. Even in this hour of hearing your word, we need you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us illumination and understanding. You would quicken us and make your word effective in our souls. That you would build us up. That we would not only sing of our need for you, but feel it, Embrace it, and give ourselves over to you more fully. Help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's good? You made it to the end. Thank you for sticking around for the guy with the funny name. I appreciate it. It's always a joy to be here uh, at Southeastern. Thank my brother uh, Danny again for hosting us. Always the gracious host. Always a joy to be on campus. And Mark for the invitation and all the brothers speaking. HB, Jono, um, Brian, Shai. Um, this is my favorite speaking rostrum, I think I've ever been a part of. Uh, just a great joy to be with you brothers and to sit under the preaching of my, some of my favorite preachers in all the world. And to be in North Carolina, man, you know, no better state in the Union. Certainly, certainly not Florida. I had dinner with this brother last night, and he's just talking smack about barbecue and fried chicken. I'm like, man, you're from Florida. You don't know what fried chicken is supposed to be like. What are you talking about? Last night I had barbecue and jerk chicken and good berries. <laughs> Heaven is going to be full of good berries with no lines. <laughs> Everybody gets a jumbo size with no calories. It's the good life, I tell you. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. Luke chapter 18 verses 1 to 8 James Bevel, Amelia Boynton and others organized a peaceful march on March 7, 1965. It was a march to demonstrate for justice in the shooting death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, a young activist and church deacon who was killed in Marion, Alabama. There's also a march in demonstration and protest for voting rights and a greater degree of freedom. As Beville, Boynton, and marchers crossed over the Edmund Pettus Bridge, they were met by state troopers and a county posse. When the marchers crossed the bridge and the county line, troopers fired tear gas into the assembled marchers. They rode on horseback through the crowd and beat the unarmed marchers with billy clubs. Many were injured on that day, including the march organizer, Amelia Boynton, You have perhaps seen the famous picture of her laying unconscious in the street. That Sunday, Lord's Day, It's come to be called Bloody Sunday. A second march was scheduled for two days later, March 9th. This time, march would be led by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but a federal judge had passed an injunction against the march such that crossing the county line would have put the marches in contempt of court. Dr. King was approached by local organizers, insisting that the march go on. He was also approached by someone from the federal government trying to negotiate and persuade him not to lead the march. He found himself torn between the two. He led the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where troopers once again were assembled, but this time, to his surprise, they they parted and opened way, came to the very edge of the bridge and did something unexpected. He stopped. He kneeled. He prayed. Following the prayer, he rose, He turned, and led the march back across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, ending the march from Selma to Alabama on that day. Selma to Montgomery, excuse me. King's reaction led to a firestorm. The more radical voices inside the civil rights movement disagreed with his decision to turn the march back, men like James Foreman and others. They accused him of, of selling out and cowering before those who kept voting rights from African Americans. What those critics didn't realize was that prayer for King was an essential part of the civil rights movement. Dr. King's four-step approach to nonviolent protest included, number one, thoroughly documenting any injustice. Number two, negotiating with the powers that be before any protest. Number three, a period of self-purification followed, number four, by public protest. That third step, self-purification, included long sessions of prayer and often fasting. It's not commonly known, but it would not be a stretch to say that the Civil Rights Movement was in fact a prayer movement as much as it was a protest movement. And the Civil Rights Movement as a prayer movement was actually the continuation of centuries long of prayer, dating back to the first African converts on American soil. Here's how Coretta Scott King put it in an article she wrote. Throughout the epic freedom struggle of African-Americans, our great sustainer of hope has been the power of prayer. We prayed for deliverance in a dozen African languages, chained to the holes of slave ships on the auction block, in the fields of oppression and under the lash. We prayed when we followed the drinking gourd on the Underground Railroad. We prayed when our families were torn asunder by the slave traders. We prayed when our homes and churches were burned and bombed and when our people were lynched by racist mobs. So many times, it seemed our prayer went unanswered, but we kept faith that one day our unearned suffering would prove redemptive. She continued describing the place of prayer in the Civil Rights Movement. Prayer was a wellspring of strength and inspiration during the Civil Rights Movement. Throughout the movement, we prayed for greater human understanding. We prayed for the safety of our compatriots in the freedom struggle. We prayed for victory in our nonviolent protests, for brotherhood and sisterhood among people of all races, for reconciliation and fulfillment of the beloved community. People of prayer bring justice into the world. It doesn't always seem that way, even to the people doing the praying. But our text this morning makes precisely this point. Prayer changes things. I I know that's cliche, but it's true, (laughs) My preaching right now at my favorite seminary in the world with a rostrum of African-American preachers in a room of mostly white brothers and sisters is living, breathing proof that prayer changes things. What we need is encouragement to keep praying, especially when things look bleak. That's the burden of our text this morning, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. If you're the note-taking type, six points. Really, we're just going to walk through the text. We want to observe the preacher of the parable, verse 1. The purpose of the parable, verse 2. The people in the parable, verses 2 and 3. The pivot in the parable, verses 4 and 5 the point of the parable, verses 6 to 8, and the problem on the earth, verse 8. The preacher, the purpose, the people, the pivot, the point, and the problem. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Consider in verse 1, the preacher of the parable. Verse 1 simply says, he told them a parable. Never has a pronoun concealed so much glory. The preacher of the parable is the eternal son of God. The one who speaks is fully God and fully man. He is the wisdom of God. He is the logos of God incarnate. He is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the seed of the woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the greater son of David, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the the firstborn of over-creation and the firstborn from among the dead. He is the crucified, buried, resurrected, risen, ascended, reigning, and coming again, Son of God. Don't let the pronoun hide the preacher. (laughs) Son of God came from glory to save us, but not only to save us, (laughs) he came also to help us to encourage us. That's what he gives us in this parable, a word of encouragement to help us in our prayer. We we are, beloved, so many of us, bruised reeds and smoking flax when it comes to our prayer lives. And he doesn't crush us. He doesn't snuff us out. The preacher in the parable calls us to hear a word Of encouragement. Let us listen to him more intently. We see the purpose of the parable in verse 1. Now, a parable is a story with a point, right? It's, it's what we, uh, um, sort of a, a, a fictional account that's meant to drive home one primary lesson. All the details in the parable are not to be taken literally. Rather, what we want to focus on is the, is the main point. And in our text, the Lord Jesus gives us a, a pastoral purpose for this parable right up front. It's what we read in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they, the disciples, ought always to pray and not lose heart. We can divide that pastoral purpose into two halves. We ought always to pray, and I love that he considered this, and not lose heart. This entire story is meant to encourage us to persevere. Prayer should be a habit, as we've heard in other sermons this weekend. It should be the the soul's calling out to God. But I love the Lord's version here of prayer without ceasing or pray without ceasing because I think the Lord intends to build us up and not bog us down under the guilt of prayerlessness. We're to not lose heart. As we pray, the Lord Jesus knows how inconsistent and dispiriting our prayer lives can become for us. He he knows that the, the long wait for desired answer can weaken us. So the parable is not law. It is gracious help. It is meant to strengthen, not condemn. Anybody need encouragement in their prayer lives? Mark, they should have said, amen. (laughs) I mean, how many of us, when we think of our prayer lives, find ourselves instantly aware of deficiencies rather than God's grace? I mean, mean, how many of us instinctively think of unanswered prayers rather than God's kind providences? When our minds go to our deficiencies or or to God's silences, we, we grow discouraged. And once discouraged, we find it easy not to pray at all, don't we? That's you. Jesus had you in mind when he taught this story with a point. His pastoral purpose is to encourage us. Now, notice the people in the parable in verses 2 and 3. First, there's a judge who cares about nothing and no one. Verse 2, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And again, in verse 4, the judge himself says of himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. So this was the man's public, uh, public reputation as well as his personal recognition. This judge has no regard for beings either high in status, God, or low, man. He doesn't have respect for anyone. He is, in that sense, immovable. He's indifferent to the divine and the human alike. Beloved, there is a kind of impartiality that is foolish and unjust. That was this judge. And then there's a woman. We meet her in verse 3. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Three things to note about this widow. Number one, she's a neighbor, right? She lives in the same city as the judge. They are neighbors, and the duty of neighbors should be observed between them, but those duties are not kept. Number two, she's a widow, I mean, she has no husband and no children. She has no kinsmen to redeem her and very likely no financial means. She is alone in the world. And number three, she has an adversary. The worst time to have an enemy is when you have no friends. Not only is she alone, but she's also vulnerable. Some injustice has happened to her and she's looking for relief. But the only person who could possibly help her in this story, who can come to her aid, is this judge who neither reveres God nor respects man. So what we have here is a picture of desperation, the the widow facing an adversary colliding with powerful indifference in the judge. What we have set up for us is a scene wherein brokenness meets brutality. It's a short but accurate depiction of the world the way the world really is. The so scene that brings to mind hopelessness. The odds are stacked against her. She has no advantage. Nothing seems to work in her favor. There are no other measures she can take. Her back's against the wall, and no supporters for her to lean on. All she has is her petition to a stoic, uncaring judge. It's a picture that should provoke something in us as readers and hearers. I wonder what you felt listening to this short story. I wonder, were you about as unmoved and dispassionate as the judge seems to be? Or did your heart break for the widow? Did you feel a kind of sympathy for her, but also feel yourself outside of her predicament, looking in? Or were you identifying with her, feeling your own desperation and sense of ineffectiveness in the world and in prayer? I think that's what we are meant to understand. We are the widows as disciples. We are in a desperate state, whether we realize it or not. And Jesus is letting us know he He knows that we sometimes feel ineffective in prayer. I think the Lord means us to see ourselves in this this woman's shoes so that we might receive the, the maximum encouragement to pray and not lose heart as we pray. I think the Lord wants his disciples to see ourselves in this woman's shoes as people desperate and in that desperation driven to constancy in prayer. You see the people there. Now, notice the pivot in verses 4 and 5. Everything looks bleak. Then verse 3 ends with the widow who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. With no other means at her disposal, she just kept renewing her request. Now the request is not eloquent. It's simple, made up of six words in English translations of our Bible. She doesn't come with case law. She doesn't make an extended argument about human or civil rights. She doesn't prosecute her adversary. She just keeps requesting, give me justice, give me justice, give me justice. And that's when the story turns. Verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." Most of us have been children. All of us have been children. Many of us have children. It seems the only part of the Bible our children read is right there in verses 4 and 5. If I just keep bothering them, they will be beaten down and give me what I want. So we understand this man's feeling. But his reaction is stunning, actually, given his character, and it's part of what is meant to encourage us. I draw four quick lessons from it. Number one, the effectiveness of prayer cannot be measured by immediate results. See there, verse four begins with, for a while he refused. We don't know how long a while was, but if you have nothing, no one, and an adversary, then a while is a long time, whether it's a day or a month or years. Each request probably made the while seem even longer. The one thing that tempts us to unbelief in prayer and tempts us to discouragement in prayer is the sense that we've been asking God the same thing for a long time. And we grow tired. And we're tempted to lose heart. We all turn into Langston Hughes when he asks in one famous poem, what happens to a dream deferred? As Christians, we're tempted to wonder, what happens to a prayer deferred? Does it, in the words of Langston Hughes, dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy Uh, sweet maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode what happens to your prayers when the answers take a while do they make you bitter do they dry up do they become a, a weight a heavy load do you give up Beloved, the effectiveness of prayer cannot be measured by immediate results. So keep on praying. Keep on praying. Unseen things are happening. Prayer changes things. But Here's a second observation. A prayer that stops at nothing can achieve anything. The man says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. The judge is self-consciously sort of unmoved by the woman. What he really is concerned about is his own convenience. He's not concerned about justice, not concerned about her case And he had the earthly power to remain unmoved if he wished. And yet the widow will not stop. She keeps bothering him. She's in the courtroom. She's outside the courtroom. She's in the grocery store. She's at temple. He he doesn't like it. He just keeps bumping into her. She keeps saying, give me justice against my adversary. She stops at nothing. The power of the petition came In the form of insistence, it was not the eloquence of the widow. It was not her familiarity with judicial procedure or law. It was not any emotional appeal. Her petition was plain. But that relentless repetition achieved what looked impossible. Not only are we to keep on praying, sometimes we're to keep on praying the same thing. And if we don't faint in prayer, we will reap. Notice the third thing. Persistent prayer is more powerful than persistent indifference. Verse 5, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The woman never lifted a hand, and yet he felt knocked out in the first round. Beat down, battered, bruised. Persistence is another word for accumulation. Accumulation. And the accumulation of requests, a decisive blow was struck. Prayer is like chopping down a tree. No one fails a tree with one blow. The impact on the tree is determined by the first blow, the second blow, the third blow. But in the unnumbered accumulation of persistent blows, the the church splits and it, or excuse me, the tree splits and it falls. (laughs) That was for somebody. (laughs) 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 The final blow was powerless without all the previous swings of the axe. Subtracting any one of those prior swings would leave the tree standing. Each swing has its value, and the effect is achieved by the total accumulation. If you want to cut down a tree, you don't stop chopping until the tree falls. If we want to be effective in prayer, we don't stop praying until the Lord acts. A final lesson here in this section this means, then, that desperate prayer is more powerful than desperate problems. This woman is desperate, her situation is de- desperate, but notice now, she doesn't spend her energy trying to fix the situation by her own means. She ain't got no means. She fixes her situation by appealing to the judge. In the parable, she fixes her situation, then, by prayer, a desperate prayer, is more powerful than desperate problems. Which brings us to the point that Jesus makes of this parable. His pastoral purpose has been to encourage disciples to pray and not lose heart. Now, in verses 6 to 8, he gives us the the point or the spiritual lesson that is intended to meet that purpose. The Lord breaks off the story, and now he gives a little commentary. Commentary. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. The key is what the unrighteous judge said in verses 4 and 5. We've been keeping our eye on the widow because she seems to have been making the more, um, sort of taking the more action in the parable. But actually, theologically, what Jesus wants us to consider is the judge. The unrighteous judge gives us a glimpse into the heart of our righteous God. The judge is the opposite of God. He's the negative of God. The judge is slow and unwilling, but God who loves us is more ready to answer our prayers than we can imagine. If the judge of that story gives justice to that widow, how much more will God give justice to his chosen people who come to him in prayer night and day? If by persistent request a widow with nothing and no one can move a judge who cares for no one and nothing, then surely God, who loves each one of us, will answer the persistent prayers of his people. We meant to see the difference between the unrighteous judge and our electing God and the difference between an abandoned widow and an elect saint. We're also meant to see the same connection between persistent prayer and justice. Now, I want us to notice something surprising in the text. When Jesus begins to translate the meaning or the point of the parable, he takes a word from the parable and includes it now in his prose, in his teaching. Remember that the details of a parable are not meant to be taken literally. So when the widow asks for justice, we're at first inclined to think that justice is just one of those details in the story that really isn't significant to the point of the story. But Luke is sneaky. Luke has this tendency to do the unexpected in familiar material. So you remember when he tells another parable, along with the other synoptic writers, about how God is able to give good gifts to his children. That doesn't give us stones when we ask for fish and so on. All the other synoptic writers uh, conclude by saying God is able to give good gifts to his children. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, what about God? Luke twists the script a little bit. Luke is like, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will God give you the Holy Spirit? I think he does something similar in this parable. We're being encouraged to pray and to not lose heart. And you would think that the punchline would merely be consider the judge and the widow's effectiveness and pray and don't lose heart. But no, 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 no. He says, God will give us justice who we'll cry out to him night and day. That's the Easter egg in the story. Jesus is really concerned about justice. He makes what was figurative literal. He says God will grant righteousness and, and, and a right working of the world to the elect. He says God will do it, notice, speedily. Now, How might we apply this? Three quick applications. Number one, First, the weapons of our warfare in fights for justice are spiritual, not carnal. The Civil Rights Movement succeeded not because of the marches, but because of the kneeling. It wasn't so much Dr. King's preaching for the movement that prevailed. It was the movement's repeated prayers that prevailed. Number two. The ultimate source of genuine justice is God, not human authority. Even though we should expect justice from government leaders, per Romans 13, we should look to God as its source. And prayer is a looking to God for the things that we need. Number three, the text presumes that all God's people are praying for justice from God. Oh, there may be some of us who are more desperate than others, and so therefore more fervent and feverish in our desperation and prayer. But here, all the elect are exhorted to pray for justice day and night. It's a covenantal concern. So that what affects you as a brother or sister in the form of injustice or unrighteousness becomes now a whole family concern when we pray to God. And so, we have this surprising joining together of prayer as answer to brokenness in the world, of all the brokenness of the world, of the injustices personal, like a widow with no one else to depend on, and the injustices corporate and cultural and systematic, like wide scale policies that prevented people the right to vote and freedom. God's answer to those problems is not most fundamentally our protests, though they have their place. God's answer to those problems is most fundamentally his people praying night and day for justice. Which brings us to conclude to our last observation. The problem on the earth. Now keep in mind, Jesus is pushing us gently. He's encouraging us to persevere in prayer. And He makes this promise of a speedy delivery of justice in answer to our prayers. And then He asks this question Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when He comes? Now, if we pull that question out of its context, it can easily become a whip or a spear. There may be a word to younger preachers among us, younger pastors among us, um, who, who maybe rightly want to see their people convicted by God's Word. Conviction is the work of the Spirit. Be careful of taking something that looks to be a zinger in the Scripture and using it like a whip on your people. Uh, well, we, could, we could ride the horse of guilt here very easily from a text like this. But I think in context, the point here is not the Lord beating down the disciples. It is the Lord entreating the disciples to faith, to prayer. I think the Lord's implied answer to the question in context is yes. He will find faith when he comes again. He will find it in the elect. He will find it in those who receive this encouragement to keep on praying. He will find it even if it's as small as a mustard seed. And on those who keep on praying, well, those will hear the well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Your faith will make you whole. Your faith will bring you reward. Your faith is shown And continuing to pray. It's our task now, beloved, to go from here and live by faith. Keep praying. Keep asking. Keep waiting. For speedily the Lord's answer will come. He doesn't mark time the way we do. But he's never late. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the ruling King who shall return and consummate his victory, in his strong name we come to you and we ask you, O Lord, for help. Help us not to disdain desperation but to welcome it as a grace, to feel it as an inducement to turn to you, and to make our requests known to you. Help us to pray with faith, not unbelieving, not merely rotely, not merely out of duty, but believing, confident, assured, Trusting you, our good God, who does all things well to to act in accord with our prayers. For you have appointed prayer as a means for doing your will. Write on our hearts the promises of Scripture where prayer is concerned. That if we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. And not only do you hear us, but hearing us, we have our request. You bid us to ask anything of you in your name. Keep us from shrinking back in unbelief. Grant us grace to lay both hands upon your promise. Believing and trusting and hoping and waiting and knowing that you love us that you've saved us, that you have promised to do us good, and that surely you will do it. In our most desperate and broken times, give us grace to pray. And in our most successful times, when we're tempted to think we're not desperate, give us grace to pray. Make us praying people we pray for your glory, And for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.